Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present today teaching us helping us to see your truth and the good news of your gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The past week, the sixth graders at my daughter's school had what they like to call a wax museum. So each student picks a character from history and studies that character. They read some stories about that character. They create a poster board about the character with different details that they've chosen from that person's life. Then each each student dresses up like that character, stands in front of their poster board in the library, and you walk around talking to each of these characters, and they give you all of the details of their lives as that character. So on Friday, I I spoke to old Kirk Christensen, who was the creator of Legos, spoke to Anne Frank, Steffi Graf, Martin Luther King Jr., Michael Jordan, just to name a few. But these students had spent time investigating these these persons in history, learning about their lives, and, and choosing the details to share. But their goal in this portrayal was tell the story of the figure and their life, and how they lived, and how that had an effect on others. That is a picture, or a great picture to me, of how the gospel writers operate. There's a lot of details about Jesus' life, but these four investigate, learn, pick the stories and and the, the things that they want to tell, and put it together for us as a portrait of who Jesus is. Luke, and I think it's, we're jumping kind of in the middle of Luke here, maybe in the first quarter or whatever, but I think a nice, a good overview is, is, will help us as we look at the passage today. He begins his gospel with the words, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. With these words, Luke sets out to accomplish the goal that Theophilus and his readers and us would know the truth concerning the things about which they have been instructed. Luke picked these stories that he decided to tell, stories that as we listen and dwell on tell us the truth about who Jesus is. And Luke does this masterfully. He has done his homework. He has spent his time investigating everything and wrestling with the scriptures and and putting it all down. In one of my favorite descriptions of how Luke works, Richard Hayes says this. He says, um, in Luke, there is an action that is happening on the foreground, playing out on the center stage. So if we use kind of our context here, the stories Luke is telling is our centered stage. They're going on right in front of us. But also, there's movies. there are movie screens in the background. We've got two screens here where the events of the Old Testament are playing out. 
And at moments, the events that are happening center stage look much like the events on the screen, and they sync up. And this story in Luke is a perfect and beautiful example of that. We've examined texts in the scriptures and talked about resurrection events in people's lives. And today, in this story, we are reminded of two stories we have already heard. So in the background, we see these two old resurrection stories. As on center stage, Jesus is walking with this widow of Nain, healing her son. The stories and kings that we have talked about with Elijah and Elisha are the ones playing on the screen. Luke makes sure that we know this. He uses the same wording in his text as found in some of those stories. And if that wasn't enough, he primes our attention in Luke 4 and tells us and mentions directly the story of Elijah being sent to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. He's like, pay attention to this. And there are some similarities between all of these three stories. Just as the widow, just as the widow in Sidon with her son is in dire straits, so is this widow. The woman is the focal point of this story, just as she is the focal point of the story that we find of Elijah and Elisha. In the story of Elijah, without a husband, without an heir, she is on the very margins of society, lacking protection and sustenance. And that is the case here as well. This woman is in deep despair. We see that in both the stories of Elijah and Elisha, and there, the woman of Zarephath and, and the other woman who Elisha brought her son back. The wording at the end of the story where Jesus gave him to his mother, exact wording as in the story of Elijah. The similarities perk up our attention and we see, the, we see how they're the same, but also, as Luke tells the story, there are differences. And both the same and the differences, they, they show and teach us the truth. What's different about this story than about the stories we are being compared with is that in this story, Jesus is not asked for anything. There's no approaching of him by a mother begging for help, demanding that he come to her aid as in those other stories. You would remember the words of blame from the suffering widow in 1 Kings 17. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. We would remember the words of desperation to Elisha, the woman, as she demanded that he come and help her. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not mislead me? As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave without you. In our story, Jesus is not asked for anything. He shows up for this woman. And there are other stories in the gospel, healing and resurrection stories. We talked about one last week. There's no rushing for healing on short time, as we heard in the resurrection story last week about Jairus' daughter. Earlier in this chapter in Luke, there's an important person, centurion, who wishes his slave to be healed, acting in faith, asking Jesus for his help. In this story, Jesus is not called for. He's not asked for a miracle. He's not begged for help. Jesus sees this suffering widow. He has compassion on her and he raises her son. He acts on her behalf because Jesus in the depths of himself is moved on her behalf. He pays attention to the suffering of this marginalized woman 
from a tiny village mourning her son. Also, what is different about the stories is how Jesus raises the son. Jesus comes forward and touches the spire, interrupting the funeral procession in a shocking way because no one would touch the buyer. It would make you unclean. You cannot touch death in this way in this culture. And Jesus then speaks directly to the son. Young man, I say to you, rise, he says. This is very different than the stories playing in the background. He doesn't pray like Elisha. He doesn't cry to the Lord to let this child's life come into him again like Elijah. He just speaks to the son. Luke, in this passage, uses the word for Jesus, the Lord, for the first time. When the Lord saw her, he says. The echo here is that it was to the Lord that Elijah cried out. But here in our story, the Lord is present. He has come to this widow, this son, and Jesus speaks to him directly and raises him from death. The truth that Luke is bearing witness to is that the Lord has come. This is not a prophet like Elijah or Elisha who is at work on behalf, who are at work on behalf of the Lord. This is the Lord God who those prophets appealed to, who those prophets prayed and asked for help. The crowds in the story get the point. They are filled with a mix of fear and awe. And Luke's witness should inspire us as well to be filled with awe. Because God has come in Jesus. The Lord has come in Jesus. And that is what Luke is telling us. But I want to take a moment and talk about what, that, what does that mean? God has come among us. God has come. Or even just what God means. We all have some preconceived notions or ideas of what and who God is. We come with all of our history to this word and to this place. Our family, friends, teachers, professors, pastors, how we were raised, the media, the natural world, all of those things, things that we've read, influence our understanding of what God means. Some have grown up with parents who use God as a, th as a threatening. He is always watching, so you better behave. Or maybe our suffering has influenced how we come to this word and our suffering has influenced us not to believe or to abandon our belief in God. All of these factors, all of these things that are unique to each one of us come and determine our definition of who God is. But sometimes we need a reset. Sometimes we need, we need help understanding this word. And I, I'm a golfer. I think I'm the only pastor that plays golf <laughs> at this church, but you know, often when, we, when I am golfing or I am practicing, you're, you need adjustments. You've got to make sure you're aimed in the right place. Your grip has to be reset. You, you just need always to kind of go back to the fundamentals, and that's a lot of the way sports are. But for us, what is the fundamentals of how we understand God? For us, it is the scriptures. It is this book that we have been given that tells us about who he is and, and what he has done. But also for us, we have this thing that we recite week after week called the Apostles' Creed. And in it, many of our church 
the folks that are involved in church history have come together and decided on a thing that would be orthodox, that will be uh, a central belief of how we should confess what we believe. The Apostles' Creed starts with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the Apostles' Creed is written based on the witness of the scriptures. He, God, is the maker of heaven and earth. All the things that we see, all the things that we do not see, all things seen by the James Webb telescope, near or far, all of the universe was created by God. We come to know who God is and know this thing about God stated in the Apostles' Creed, as I said, through the scriptures. They tell us who God is and teach us how we should think about him. In one of my favorite passages, God addresses Job. He's talking about who he is and how he knows things. And he's tell, he tells Job how he holds the universe together. How he made behemoth and leviathan. The biggest and baddest creatures on the planet were put together by God and answered to him. They do what he says because God made them. Our understanding of God needs to come from outside of ourselves. We cannot conjure up what or who he is in our minds or on our own. We need to listen. Listen to the witness that he has given us. See how he has chosen to reveal himself in Jesus Christ. In one of my professors wrote a book called Theology for the Troubled Believer, which I would highly recommend. His name is Diogenes Allen, um, which is an interesting name also. But I have a passage where he describes and defines God early in his book. I want to read it to you. In the Christian understanding of God, God is not a member of the universe, but its creator. As creator, God transcends the universe and thus is not a member of it. Universe means all that there is except God. And as we will see, whoever rejects God because the traditional proofs of God's existence fail is like someone fishing in the ocean. Some people fail to catch God in their nets, not because their nets are too small, nor because their nets are torn, but because God is not in the ocean. At every moment of time, God is the creator and sustainer of the ocean. God continuously generates everything that is, exists. This is why God is everywhere, present as the continuous generator of everything that is, present to everything as their source. He says that very well. When we search for God, sometimes we look in the wrong place. We fail to catch God in our nets because God is not in the ocean. At every moment, God is the creator and sustainer of the ocean and all things that we see. We strive to find God by our own theories and methods, and sometimes that just doesn't work because on our own, we can't get there. It takes God coming to us, helping us to see and to understand. And you might ask, well, then how do we find him if we're looking? How can we find God and know what he's like? I think the incredible truth that Luke tells us in this witness is that God is found at the gates of a small village called Nain, uncalled for, but full of compassion, helping a widow in the depths of suffering, reaching out and touching the buyer and telling her son to rise. The witness of the Gospels is that God, who is not part of the universe, 
has become part of the universe by taking on human flesh in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. There's much hope for us in this. God does not wait to be called for to come and meet us. We may think we are too far. We may feel too lost in grief or sadness. We may not want to meet God, but God who is full of compassion comes to us. In a wonderful recounting of her conversion, Anne Lamott uh, writes this in her book, Traveling Mercies. I'm gonna read, it's, it's a little long, but I, I want to read it to you because it is striking. I, I am also gonna clean it up because we're in church and there's some words that I probably shouldn't say from the pulpit. After, this is after going through a really difficult period and she is really at the bottom of her life. She writes this. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me hunkered down in the corner and I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course there wasn't. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I felt my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love, and I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. The experience spooked me so badly, but I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in, but I knew what would happen if you, let a, if you let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door when I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs, and this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But that last song was so deep and raw and pure, I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid, and oh, I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction and I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels and I walked down the dock past a dozen of dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams, and I opened the door to my houseboat. I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. It's just so powerful and beautiful the way she writes that, as God and Jesus following her around and coming to her uncalled for, unwanted, but relentless. Finally, in another shocking part of the story in Luke, Jesus tells the suffering woman not to weep. Do not weep, he says to her. That is not what you're supposed to say to a widow who has lost her son. 
It's a strange and not recommended comment. Unless you are the one who created and sustains all life. Unless you know you are about to raise her son from death. Jesus here restores this woman by bringing her son back to her. He brings her out of her grief and gives her the gift of resurrection. We talked about how this looks back and brings about memories of Elijah and Elisha, but this story also looks forward to another mother's son who has died. The same son who in our story reaches out and touches a buyer, reaches down and touches death completely. Dying on our behalf, dying to deal with sin and death. And that son also experiences resurrection. Not a temporal resurrection, but a fully new, completely different resurrection. That we too might look to a future with hope. Knowing that because of this son, we also will one day experience full, complete, new resurrection. Not in a temporary way, because we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. There's a song by Mumford and Son called After the Storm, and it paints a beautiful picture of the human situation. The difficulty and fear surrounding death, but also the future hope we look to. As he, as he struggles with this, he writes this wor- these words. I won't die alone and be left there. Well, I guess I'll just go home. Oh, God knows where. Because death is just so full and man so small. Well, I'm scared of what's behind and what's before. There will come a time you'll see with no more tears, and love will not break your heart. But dismiss your fears, get over your hill and see what you find there, with grace in your heart and flowers in your hair. We look forward to the day of no more tears, where love no longer breaks our hearts, and we are part of God's new creation. That is the promise of resurrection. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.